Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and on Saturday I enjoyed an 11-hour brunch. You bourgeois fuck. I know. I realise this means this friendship is over, but <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Started with croissants, ended with pizza and a nap on the sofa. Lovely stuff. That sounds amazing. It was great. I'm Hannah Zunlevy and this weekend I saw one of the babies. Yay! There are so many babies around at the moment. Can you tell us which one? As people probably know, you've got a niece or nephew on the way. Jen had a baby. One of my cousins had a baby and also my friend Laura had a baby and it, that was her baby that I went to see. And I love that Laura and her partner haven't yet named the baby and he is 16 now. <laughs> yeah, they need to get on it or soon the state <laughs> is going to name that baby. I kind of want them to miss the deadline because I'm kind of curious to what name the state gives out. All babies just get called Boris. God, what a repulsive thought. Later on, Annabelle Bly of The Conversation UK and the Antil podcast tells me about her new podcast series, Recovery, which looks at key crises through history and society's subsequent recovery from them and asks if we can draw any parallels with what's happening today. I'm looking forward to that. That sounds well interesting. It is interesting. I talked to Kate Nation, founder of Turtle Dove, a charity aiming to empower young women not in education, employment or training. Neats, as they are known. And... Fetch me a scotch and a sheepskin jacket because in Dunleavy Does Disaster, we watched 70s classic. And I'm not quite sure of the use of the word classic there. Meteor. <laughs> I'm going to try and keep my Sean Connery impressions to a minimum, but it's going to be tricky. Yeah. What accent was he going for in that, do you reckon? He was an American. <laughs> <laughs> but first, fat fighting, fundraising and the continuing lack of empathy on Twitter. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. I'd like to say it was going to be funnier than that photo of Matt Hancock running, but I'm not sure if anything ever will be. I haven't Have seen, seen it. it? Oh. No, I might need you to do an impression for me. I don't think I can because I think it's literally something that's incredibly specific to Matt Hancock. It is Matt Hancock in the spirit of running. He looks a tiny bit like he's just seen an ice cream van. And he's running towards it with that sort of level of enthusiasm. It's his tongue out. <laughs> but also looks like he's possibly never run before in his life at the same time. It's very funny. Okay, I'm going to have to... I had, I had to crank out a crying, laughing emoji. And you know I'm very, very sparing on my uh, emoji use. Wow, that's it's big talk. It's big talk. Yeah. So, if anyone thought that the departure of Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour leadership role might spell the beginning of the end of the long-running and thoroughly depressing row over anti-Semitism in the party's ranks, well, ha, ha. Last week, we saw a revival of the Panorama saga when Labour agreed to pay, and I quote, substantial damages to seven former employees who had sued Labour over, again, this is a quote, defamatory and false allegations. The legal action followed a July 2019 edition of Panorama entitled Is Labour Anti-Semitic? Following the hearing, Labour issued an unreserved apology to all seven, adding, again, this is a quote, we unreservedly withdraw all allegations of bad faith, malice and lying. Labour also apologised to John Ware, the journalist who made the programme, for falsely accusing him of deliberate and malicious misrepresentations designed to mislead the public. End of story. 
Who are you fucking kidding? Hmm. Corbyn described the decision as a political and not a legal one and added that the settlement risks giving credibility to misleading and inaccurate allegations. He basically did the equivalent of Labour making that statement and then him just going, not, at the end of it, like we used to do in the 90s. Well, you might have. I didn't. Not. (laughs) (laughs) Corbyn's comments, perhaps unsurprisingly, only inflamed tensions further, with the lawyer representing the whistleblowers and Ware announcing he had been instructed to sue Corbyn. Cue a fundraiser in which, and far be it for me to tell anyone how to spend their cash, people committed to Corbyn's values of raising up the poor among us by pledging £170,000 to help out a man who until recently earned £140,000 a year. Anyone wondering if anti-Semitism is really the problem it is claimed to be can perhaps learn something from the fact that this wasn't the biggest anti-Semitism story (laughs) of the week. As British grime artist Wiley said, hold my beer before embarking on a disgusting two-day tirade against Jewish people that, as I speak, remains largely uncensored on Twitter and Instagram. Many Jewish people and their allies are, again, as I speak, embarking on a two-day boycott of Twitter. I've not done that for reasons I am more than happy to discuss over Twitter if necessary, but also because I think we've made it very clear over the past few years what our thoughts on anti-Semitism are. So, although it should go without saying, but just in case it doesn't, anti-Semitism, wherever and whoever it comes from, needs to be called out and stamped out. Agreed. Patronising, oversimplistic and not very well thought through. Clearly that could be said about any number of the UK government's plans, but I'm specifically (laughs) talking about its latest campaign, the war on obesity, because is a Tory plan even a plan if it doesn't have some connotations of the trenches? No, it is not. (laughs) So far, it's all been headline-grabbing fare, including a ban on buy one, get one free offers on unhealthy food. And you can hear the air quotes around unhealthy because this has, of course, not been defined in any real way as yet. And a 9pm watershed for fast food ads that might extend to banning online junk food ads altogether. There'll also be a ban on chocolates, crisps and sweets at the checkout. And calories are to be displayed on menus in restaurants and pubs, including for alcoholic drinks. So far, so predictable in that the government is pushing responsibility firmly onto the individual. But as has been proven time and time again, the obesity time bomb, as they're calling it, is much more complicated than eat less, move more. As it stands now, it feels like the government plan is to shame the nation into going on a diet. And as 95% of people who have tried a diet know, they just don't work long term. The thing is, yes, this is a big problem. And yes, it needs intervention to tackle it. Maybe the second round of the campaign will be addressing, I don't know, the links between poor wages, poor mental health and poor diet and acknowledging that if you genuinely want to banish obesity, you have to tackle social inequality and make sure people can grow up with healthy food choices and decent self-esteem. Given that food bank use continues to rise exponentially because people can't even afford to eat, I'm keen to know how Johnson and his party aim to make the ability to be healthy and buy nourishing nutrient-packed food anything other than a privilege. Here's hoping, eh? To promote the launch, Number 10 released a video of the Prime Minister, who says he's lost a stone since he was hospitalised with COVID-19, walking his dog Dylan in the grounds of Chequers. 
It's all accompanied by the gentle strains of classical music, which I'm guessing Johnson requested to drown out the that presumably usually keeps him company when he's on a walk. Oh, Jesus. I wondered about that dog because we hadn't seen it since it got introduced to us back in the election. I thought perhaps it had found itself, you know, shut in a cupboard in Downing Street or, you know, gifted to another home. There was talk of Dylan having to move out, but I think they decided to keep the dog and give away the baby. That's uh, <laughs> unconfirmed as yet. Oh, I do have some stuff in common with Boris, after all. <laughs> so let's talk briefly about Kanye West and the statement put out by his wife, Kim Kardashian, about his mental health last week. As you may or may not know, West is running for president. I put that in quotes slash sarky voice because if you genuinely believe he poses a threat to the main two parties candidates, you're kidding yourself. Even if the pair of them are about as appealing as a holiday in Spain with Grant Shapps. Oh. <laughs> West is bipolar and Kardashian's statement came, she said, to address, quote, the stigma and misconceptions around mental health. She added... Those that understand mental illness or even compulsive behaviour know that the family is powerless unless the member is a minor. And added, I kindly ask that the media and public give us the compassion and empathy that is needed so that we can get through this. Social media immediately filled up with less than empathetic responses. No. (laughs) What about how mean they were to Taylor Swift? And I've got bipolar and it doesn't make me call Harriet Tubman a cunt. And while I'm not going to argue with any individual's experiences of mental illness, I think the key word there is individual. And what I will say is that regardless of what I think of West or Kardashian, as someone who had a dad who I desperately wanted to help but couldn't because he didn't want it, I have a huge amount of empathy for their children. And so, easy pickings, though they may be, you will get no Kanye West jokes from me. My only worry is that he will serve to make Trump look less outrageous as a prospect. Yes, but to be honest, so will Joe Biden. And the fact that Joe Biden doesn't seem to be fully in control of his mental faculties at the moment either. God save America. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, yeah, really. <laughs> they need him. <laughs> Do you fancy some good news, Hannah? Uh... <laughs> I know you're going to like this one. Pip the Otter was the runt of the litter and abandoned by her mum, leaving zookeepers worried that she wasn't going to make it. Hooray then for Sam the Bengal cat, beloved pet of one of the zookeepers and Pip's new best friend. In a delightful YouTube compilation of the two's adventures, Sam clearly thinks Pip is some sort of weird cat, while Pip regards Sam as a weird otter, but the two get along great guns nonetheless. Otterly lovely stuff. Uh, do you know what I think we should just record that right and just put that out in the Bush Telegraph I mean we have recorded it but clip (laughs) it and then just put it out in the Bush Telegraph every week I'm down with that sounds good more news next week well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week it's that time of the week where I ask Hannah what are you wearing Actually, not very much because I am a menopausal woman, um, but there you go. <laughs> Whether that's likely to give you a raging stonk on is down to the individual. <laughs> Absolutely no judgment here. But whether that's something women should be working to encourage during business Zoom calls 
is a big fat fuck off to the employers who, it turns out, have been urging women to dress sexier in video meetings. Research carried out by employment law specialists Slater and Gordon revealed more than a third of women were asked to put more makeup on or redo their hair, while 27% were asked to dress in a more provocative way. And hey, before you get those delightful tits in a twist, Hannah, it's uh, for the good of the company. Or at least that's how some 41% of employers who took part in the study justified this outrageous sexism, claiming it would, quote, help to win new business. Hmm. Daniel Parsons, an employment lawyer at Slater and Gordon, said it is categorically wrong for a manager or anyone in a position of power to suggest, even politely, for a woman to be more sexually appealing in the workplace. This is demeaning to women. It's extremely disappointing that we are still having these conversations, particularly during a time when women are juggling a multitude of roles from home and maybe also struggling with childcare responsibilities. This type of archaic behaviour has no place in the modern working world. Misogyny uh, finds a way. That's incredible, isn't it? And yet entirely credible. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in 2020, here we are, guys. I also have a mini sexism of the week that I wanted to bring up. Awesome, because I would love some more sexism, please. Yeah. Got a little bit longer, just cram a bit in. Obviously, as you know, the use of face marks came in this week and I saw a lot of people tweeting about the sort of person that doesn't wear a face mask. And almost universally, they said the word Karen in these tweets, including the Birmingham Live, which is a the Birmingham local newspaper Twitter account, which tweeted a photograph that said, mask save lives, put one on, grow up Karen. And I would just like to point out well, actually, I'd just like to ask anyone who is possibly, because I know a lot of people are annoyed about it, just to stop doing it because it is perpetuating a massive untruth. Women are, all studies have shown, twice as likely to put a mask on without argument as a man is. Karens are not the root of this problem. And I know people might be using the word Karen in a way that they mean any shouty person that asks to complain to the manager but it is very much a gendered term and women aren't the problem. And you'll know that if you've seen James Dellingpole, you know, conservative commentator, running around taking photographs of himself without a face mask in shops and encouraging other people to do it as well. And if you look who's responded to him, they are almost universally men. I also saw Quentin Letts, who is the arts critic for the Daily Mail, complaining that whilst in a theatre to watch something, he was told off three times for not wearing his mask properly. And I thought, wear your fucking mask properly, you bellend. Yeah, yeah. It sometimes reminds me of the people used to say, God, I walked through King's Cross. Three different people asked me to buy the big issue. And I was like, well, just fucking buy one then. And then you can say (laughs) to the next person, I've got one, thanks. You know, people might stop asking you. Such simple solutions to such (laughs) tricky, tricky problems. Yeah, shut it, Karen. Not. (laughs) (laughs) I am joined on the phone by Annabelle Bly, producer and host of the Ant Hill podcast and business and economy editor at The Conversation. Annabelle, hello. Hello. First of all, can you tell us about The Conversation? Yeah, sure. So The Conversation is a news website, but where it differs to other websites is all the articles are written by academic experts. So whatever's going on in the news, we're like a team of journalist editors. and We go and find academics who research 
that thing that's going on in the news and get them to give kind of well thought out researched analysis of what's going on and you've run it as a charity is that right yeah so there's no advertising no big funders were basically funded mostly by universities so predominantly uk universities but also a few across europe as well it's been going for about seven years now but we've had an incredible uptick in the last six months i guess the whole coronavirus thing has made people really realize that they actually want to hear from experts with when stuff like this is going on in the world and do readers subscribe are you actually getting any money from them or is it all free so it's totally free to read and, and you don't get any added benefits if you give us money but um we do totally welcome people <laughs> throwing money into the pot so if anyone wants to do that that's that's very welcome and you also have a limb that does podcasts the anthill podcasts and the latest series recovery is such a cracking idea with the various hosts, including yourself, and changing panels of academic experts taking a look at historic catastrophes and society's subsequent recoveries to look for parallels with today and lessons to take from history to help us deal with the current pandemic and lockdown. You kick off with a doozy, the Black Death, but you also take in earthquakes, (laughs) financial crashes, Spanish flu, a couple of world wars and the dismantling of the Soviet bloc. It is fascinating. I absolutely loved it. What made you want to look at the current situation this way? I guess when we started planning the podcast, we were very much in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. And we just figured that because we work with academics every day, we were just aware that there's so much amazing research done into all of these crises throughout history. And with so many unknowns about the future and what was going on with coronavirus, we were like, let's speak to people about what they have actually researched and what they've spent years thinking about. And I guess we wanted it to be a bit hopeful as well. Like we we wanted to be talking about practical things that everyone could be thinking about, what we could just, I guess, push for in terms of getting governments to, to act in certain ways. It is a very wide-ranging bunch of topics that you've chosen there. How did you choose what to cover? So I guess there were sort of, I guess, the obvious ones, like the Black Death and the Spanish flu that with coronavirus, everyone has been drawing upon and and making comparisons to. There were sort of those two that we were like, okay, we we should probably talk about these. And then we, we just wanted to talk about stuff that, that people maybe weren't as aware of. So um, I'd never heard of this big earthquake that happened in Lisbon mm. in the 18th century. But one of my colleagues has a PhD in late medieval history. So she knew about it. And she was like, yeah, this was like a really momentous event that happened in Europe at the time. And I mean, it literally shook the continent, but also kind of philosophically, yeah. uh, it kind of shook people's faith as well. And then it was also because it basically flattened Lisbon, which was sort of one of the the biggest, most cosmopolitan cities in Europe at the time. There was a literal rebuilding project. So we were like, okay, let's tell a story that people haven't heard of and, yeah, hear something a bit different. That was definitely the one that was new news to me. I love me a bit of history, so I kind of had a vague idea of the other stuff that you cover. But the ripple effect of what happened in Lisbon was incredible with mm-hmm. religion, society, just how everyone across the globe saw the world. Yeah, totally. You've got like authors that you've heard of like Goethe and Voltaire writing about it because they literally felt it. And also 
the fact that it was written about in newspapers across Europe. So it's kind of known as almost the first modern tragedy in a way. Yeah, one of the interesting points made in that particular podcast is that sensationalism and humanitarianism go hand in hand. And I thought that was really interesting Mm. because sensationalism, quite rightly, a lot of the time gets a bad rap, but it actually has led to people pitching in and helping others on the other side of the world. Yeah, it can go both ways. The academics that you spoke to are all very diligent in pointing out that there are never any direct parallels in history. But I'd like to know, what have you learned about past recoveries that might have implications for this one? One that really stuck out to me was after the First World War. Um, You've got the First World War ending in 1918, and then you've also got what was called the Spanish flu taking effect. And one thing that really struck me about the recovery effort with that was there was this like real desire for everything to go back to normal Mm. for things to return to how they were before the first world war and that really kind of stifled any sort of revolutionary change or revolutionary thinking so because everyone just wanted things to go back to normal they they didn't really think very big whereas in the episode after that we were looking at the aftermath of world war ii and and the introduction of the welfare state You've got Beveridge saying something like, you know, in a revolutionary moment, we need revolutionary ideas. And, you know, there's like this really radical change in thinking that that takes place in the Second World War. And that leads to stuff like the NHS, free healthcare for all, but also social housing and making education widely available for everyone from like secondary school onwards. How optimistic are you feeling about that shared suffering prompting fresh thinking in the current situation? Cool. I mean, I don't know. I, I think I, I sort of seesaw all the time on this mm. from despair as to, to what's going on and, you know, even just rapidly exiting lockdown at the moment and the sort of desire to... to yeah that sort of desire to get things back to normal which you know I totally share like I don't want to be stuck at home the whole time but yeah that versus listening to like scientists who are maybe saying to be a bit more cautious I don't know I don't know where my hope levels are at the moment (laughs) how about you where are you at I'm so cynical I've got no hope in hope anymore but I keep I do keep hoping I suppose that people will change my mind about that As you actually cover with all of the episodes in recovery, that it's the rich, that it's the state, that it's the government that make the most out of these catastrophes rather than the the people who need it most, the vulnerable people, opportunism seems to reign large in every one of these experiences. Mm. Like stepping in, using the existing money and leverage they have to, to get more control. I guess the thing I'm hopeful about actually is there has been a massive change in like economic thinking since the 2008 crisis so that's the last episode that we that we cover and you know people have stopped talking about austerity that's seen as a bad thing even by the conservative party we're seeing governments spending tons of money to to bail people out and it just goes to show that you know governments can do things but they can pull their fingers out so In that sense, I'm a bit hopeful. I guess what maybe recovery made me feel hopeful about is that even though Winston Churchill was an incredibly popular figure as prime minister, Mm. even the Labour Party was absolutely 
gobsmacked when in 1945 they got into power. Yeah, landslides. And they hadn't been in power since like the mid-30s, it was about 10 years or something. So, yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows? That's it. There's no, there's no straight answers. How have our reactions as people changed to catastrophes over the centuries? Oh, that's a good one. I guess in lots of ways they haven't. I mean, the average individual in, in all of these big crises is, is kind of just muddling along and hoping to survive that crisis and, and make the best of things. I guess where we are today that's so different to, to historic crises is we live in a much more democratic society. We live in a world where people do have voices to a much larger degree, whether that's through social media or just the internet. I guess today I hope that people are going to be in a more empowered position to get through this crisis a lot better. When I was listening to the Black Death episode, mm. the power of the labourers who rose up is something that I think in my more hopeful moments, I've seen people go, no, we've got, to, we've got to come back greener. We've got, this is a chance to do something about climate change. And obviously in the Black Death, which reduced the population of Europe by like 50% and it kept coming back for a good century after that. Yeah. The fact that they had this momentum to challenge what had been the status quo. And obviously a lot of them were smacked down because that did not suit the Lords. But the fact that they even tried to do that is surely a little bit of optimism there, right? Right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I mean, it sort of makes you think of all the Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on. And, and it, you know, it goes to show racism's been a, a massive issue in society for so long mm -hmm. that by and large has been swept under the carpet or ignored by the majority of people because it doesn't affect them. But we are actually beginning to see people talking about it and caring about it some more. The thing that, that a crisis does, which we saw in all of the episodes, is it, it shocks people into some kind of action or it accelerates changes that are going on in society already. So that's what the Black Death did. It accelerated all these kind of changes that sort of maybe started to begin a bit. And I guess that's just what we've got to do now going forward is like remember the stuff like Extinction Rebellion that was going on last year, carry on protesting that Black Lives Matter and just riding that momentum. Yeah, absolutely. Which of the episodes that you recorded and listened to and produced surprised you the most? Ooh. So, I mean, everything about the Lisbon earthquake episode was totally new to me. Mm. So I guess that was pretty surprising. There was like a really weird fact that got thrown out in the Spanish flu episode where it was a science historian talking about how the kind of obsession with cleanliness started influencing design. And someone apparently designed even a pencil sharpener that had no sharp edges. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I, unfortunately, we didn't actually dwell on that. I, I've tried to Google it since and I cannot find this pencil sharpener because I really want to know how it actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> maybe someone could help us out with that. And we've sort of touched on it a little bit, but did you discover anything hopeful over the series? Can you leave us on a note of hope for what might be our future, the new normal? Yeah, so I mean, the emphasis has got to be on what happened after World War Two and the fact that you know governments can step in, they can bring in radical changes, they can build a ton of houses for people who are 
clearly like living in overcrowded spaces they can build hospitals the ability is there we've just got to got to have the willing and I guess the other really hopeful note is that across all of the different disasters that you cover in recovery the people pull together to an extent yeah definitely and there's also you see these cultural outpourings as well so yeah there was chat in the Black Death episode about you've got poets like Chaucer and Langland people trying to make sense of what of the big crisis that's gone on and it does result in amazing literature and I'm sure that going forward we're going to see people just grappling with the last six months and whatever there is to come as well I hope and believe that we'll, we'll see some really cool things yeah definitely fingers crossed Annabelle where can people find out more about recovery about the Ant Hill podcast in general and also about the conversation so the best place to go is probably theconversation.com and there you can read lots of articles that relate to, to coronavirus. We had people who were involved in the Oxford vaccine trials that are going on writing for us this week. Go to theconversation.com to read lots and also find out more about the anthill on there and the podcast and stuff. It's an incredible resource. Thank you so much for making it happen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hello there, listener. Jen here to ask you a little favour, if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspira Jen, Mickey at Mixta Noonan and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined on the phone by Kate Nation of Turtle Dove, a Cambridge-based charity which aims to empower girls and young women aged 15 to 23. Hello, Kate. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Now, NEETS, young people who are not in education, employment or training, there are 792,000, I found, for 2019, I can't imagine anything has happened in 2020 that would make that better. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and assume it's made it worse. Yeah. There are twice as many women and girls in that group as there are young men and boys. Why is that, in your expert opinion? Yeah, it's a really good question. And what I've found even more fascinating is that within the categories of needs, there's the inactive needs. Because I always say to people, well, it's one thing not having a job, but it's another thing actually being inactive and stuck and not looking for a job and being stuck effectively, potentially long term. And again, there's, I think, 60 percent, it was 2019, 60 percent of the inactive needs are female. So not only, as you say, the high proportion of young women becoming neat, but then with when you're in that category, there's a much higher percentage that of young women that are going to be inactive. And that's where, to me, that's a really potentially dangerous place to be because you you get stuck. So reasons, I think there is so, so, so many reasons in, in that there's a systemic problem with women not accessing as much education, the same job opportunities as men. So there's there's that that already we're fighting, already is, is a problem in regards to women not being taken as seriously. 
far as young women, there are so many issues around mental health and social media has, you know, in however many years that's escalated the issues around mental health, loads of other factors. I mean, it's huge. Early pregnancy, there's massive issues around domestic violence and the peer-on-peer violence, particularly with, obviously, with the internet, the increase of porn being much more accessible and then the normalisation of violence within young relationships as well. And that can have a knock-on, will have a knock-on effect on mental health and of the young women. And, and so it's, it's just massive, to be honest. It's absolutely massive. And what we see a lot of is very, very high anxiety huge issues with anxiety low self-esteem and depression and and actually you you therefore you've got to get over that before you can literally get out in, into the world and that might be going to the shops let alone having some work experience to put on your cv to go and get a job yeah it's, it's very multifaceted i think it's very easy for young women as well to fake confidence on a sort of a what i would describe as maybe a local level and social media probably makes that even easier but at the same time people always describe me as a really confident young woman but that was only a facade that I put out into the world I don't think I was genuinely confident about who I was until I was maybe in my 30s actually to be honest yeah so how do you work with young people at Turtle Dove to try or young women to try to bring that confidence out in them yeah so it's a a youth work model and it's voluntary engagement and the premise being that the young women are referred to us they're referred to us from specialist agencies that are already engaging with them that's really important so they've already identified that our service might be appropriate for them and that could be the county council youth support service that could be social care that could be housing for young women that are vulnerably housed and supported housing and we will have an initial three-way meeting so that support worker or youth worker will present the idea to the young woman it's really important that they they want to do it and they, they like the sound of it and so as I said it's not a course it's not necessary in regards to their education it's something that was you know one step below that in regards to um, boosting their confidence and then in that meeting a youth worker predominantly myself will go along will explain what we do and then it's up to the young women as to whether they want to engage and what what do we do we provide the youth support that's the one of the key aspects of what we do it's not all work placement and you know there's no trained youth workers that might not have the people that don't have the understanding of the complexities of issues that these young women are facing and then they come along and they they get work game work experience at events across the city and often people look at our website and they see the pretty china and they see the cakes and very rarely but still very occasionally people are like so can you do some cakes and we're like no we're not a caterers we are um, an event service so we support already established events in the community so that could be and um, we've worked at around 200 for some of the mo- most niche is like cambridge beekeepers conference to weddings, to lots of social enterprises for customer there, say AGM, and and then we serve the food and drink, and we might do guest registration. But the point being is that the young women become a part of the team. It's a female-only team. That's really important. It's really supportive. They're getting really positive role models, um, and lots of them have have had issues with male violence. So actually, they they need to and peer again, peer on peer violence, and so they want their supportive space away from that in order to to grow. And and it is it's a lot of fun also they get to choose so say we had four events in a month four to six events and one of them was massive one of them the biggest one we've done last summer 200 people wedding for some that would be absolutely terrifying and we say okay well if that's 
if you don't want to do that one, what about a smaller conference? We would present it so they know what they're getting into. But equally, we would talk them through in regards to anxiety, saying, well, actually, we always need somebody in the kitchen. If you don't want to go out and serve the canapes, why don't you do the washing up in the kitchen the whole day? If we're serving from our vintage china, can't put that through the dishwasher. So we need yeah. somebody constantly washing the teapot, filling up the teapot. And then it's up to them as, as to how long they're involved for. So we've had some do a few events and then gone off and got a part-time job and, and that was enough. Then others for a couple of years on and off and whether that's because of physical issues, not being able to get a job or whether that's because they've had part-time jobs that's really unstable, say at somewhere temporary for a big conglomerate over Christmas and then don't need them after Christmas. Then they, in their own words, have come back to us and said, oh, I don't want to get depressed. I want to do something. So they know they can come back to us, which is, is fab. I've always wanted that kind of relational model that I think is, is really important, particularly for working with young women. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you say that about working temporarily, say like over Christmas, because that will be obviously helpfully financially, um, I, I would imagine, mm. and probably good in the short term. But actually, the fact that people say, yeah, thanks, bye, off you go, mm. in itself, I would imagine, is a confidence knock because you think, Absolutely. you know, if I'd been amazing, they would have kept me. I don't think they ever would have, but your brain can tell yourself yeah. some funny things, can't it? Definitely. And also at the beginning, there might have been that conversation of, well, because they want people to to join yeah. for Christmas. Oh, maybe we'll have work afterwards and that maybe might keep them going. And as you say, there probably was potentially never going to be in the plan, but that hope was there that yeah. it might turn into something more long term. Can I ask, Kate, what your background is, how you decided to step into this field yeah absolutely from a really young age about 18 I'd always loved working with children and young people obviously I was the young person myself I studied overseas and did a youth work course and from then onwards I'd in some capacity worked with children and young people when I was at university I worked at the YMCA because I was just bored of students and had too much time on my hands so I worked with um, homeless young people at the YMCA and then I worked with autistic people in a residential centre and you know, it's been quite eclectic as far as my experience. I studied in Brazil about 10 years ago, I've been back a few times, but when I studied there it was a really broad course in regards to working children at risk and you know various projects you could get involved with, issues around trauma and fostering, And but it was then that it became really apparent to me that I wanted to work particularly with young women and quite simply because there's there's more need and there's more issues and although turtle dove is a drop in the ocean it's focused on the needs of young women and so from then from coming back to the UK and Cambridge is my hometown I um, then got a job at a charity called Romsey Mill which funny enough I went to as a kid and the job was specifically to develop young women's work across the city within within their youth work programme. And then from there, um, we got some funding from an organisation at the time called Young Lives, where the young women did research across the programme with other young women saying, what are your greatest needs? What's been most helpful? And from a generic youth work background, which is, is great and there's a huge need for it. And sadly, we've had loads of cuts in regards to that. But to me, I wanted to do something more focused with young women and not just looking at uh, positive activities, particularly that engage more, more so young men like music and football and um, summer programmes. I wanted to do something more targeted. And, and it was the young women, the young leaders that we worked with in their own words that said, when you gave us positions of responsibility within a team, that's when my confidence grew the most. 
and 70% of the participants in the research said their biggest need covered, we covered everything from bullying to domestic violence to financial issues to homelessness. 70% said their biggest issue was confidence which isn't a surprise because then if you've got the confidence to walk into the housing office or to leave that abusive relationship, then actually, I'm not saying, I'm not um, diminishing those things, but that gives you the tools to start yeah. to navigate those things. So I pilot it with a friend of mine who used to work for County Council in Cambridge, was in school support at the time. And we said, okay, if, what can we replicate in regards to giving you positions of responsibility within the team and it being female only? Because again, the feedback was, well, if there are boys, if there are young men around, then actually we don't perform as well because yeah. that becomes a competitive thing or, you know, it totally changes the dynamics. So from there, we, we piloted it. It's actually as far back as 2013 to test. We tested it. And that was an event at the Box Cafe in Norfolk Street called Cambridge Meets Brazil. And that was, we had some funding to take a team back to the project I knew in Brazil. And 10 young women that I worked with from Rumsey Mill they were involved from the planning to the delivery to the review and obviously we looked at the outcomes and it was things like I got something to put on my CV I've mixed with people outside my community I never talked to people outside of my community I've learned about budgeting I've learned about behavior management we've reviewed the venue and we should have had bigger spaces for buggies and you know all of these things that basically treating them like an adult yeah. and also seeing where their skills fit okay do you want to deal with the help with the money side of things the food side of things the greeting side of things the arts and crafts side of things and so the beauty of events as, as crazy as they are is they're so multifaceted and so in regards to them learning their strengths and their skill sets in a in a supportive environment is is, is brilliant from then after I mean I had to quit my job and was studying part-time and you know, from when we started about five years ago, it, we're still early days, but it's it's snowballed. And the, the young women themselves identify it. The young women, when we present what we do, they're like, this is what I need. I need this. I need to learn to speak to people and I need encouragement here. And, and so they they advocate for our service being yeah. a good option for them, which is, is affirming in regards to the model. It's interesting that you say about the all women groups as well, because I think in the age group that you are talking about, so 15 to 23, I think everything about society tells women that other women are the enemy rather than yeah. a source yeah. of potential support. And so what you are showing is that that is most certainly not the case. Absolutely. And I've got goosebumps you saying that. <laughs> and I was literally um, listening to Eloquent Rage last night and she was basically saying... To be a feminist, you have to love women. You have to love each other. You have to affirm each other. And I loved that your statement about we just accept you as you are. Mm -hmm. We want you to be almost unapologetically yourself. For a lot of the young women, yeah, they have had negative experiences with other women, especially around bullying and, you know, competitiveness in relationships and the list goes on. But when they come into our world that we create this culture and the stamp, the statements that they come out with are phenomenal. They're things like, you know, a 15-year-old, you know, who'd always be out and about with her friends and, you know, then she comes into an adult environment and I get, because events are stressful, so I get flappy yeah. and I get like, have you done the team? Have you got the urn on? And, and they're like, Kate, we've got this. We're team TD. You know, <laughs> it's all right. We're a team. We're going to do it together. Oh, and, you know, some of them have, yeah, said equated it to like a family and even the event staff, we've got um, some testimonies that we're going to put out near our birthday soon. Is 
one of them was just lovely and she said you know I learn as much from the young women as they do from me and we all pull together and that's a, a credit to our team really and we're really lucky we've got some really great youth workers and some phenomenal women that that champion not just the cause but obviously mainly the young women that we work with. I was wondering if you could give me an example of someone who's a really sort of positive story for you. Oh, there are loads. I'll go back to an early days one. She was very consistent for probably two years. But as I say, the very, very early days of Turtle Dove where we didn't have as many event staff and volunteers. And she basically became like a leader in herself, which was wonderful. I met her through her church youth group, so the youth leader, introducing her in an echoing church and I could barely hear her. I had to literally lean in because she was so quiet and so timid she wouldn't look at me and she dropped out of college um, there was issues around domestic violence at home and she just just was really really isolated and again she'd been given a position of leadership within this church youth group um, and had really thrived there and then when she came to us you know she was so dedicated and so committed and she just she just flew and to the extent that we had I won't go into the whole saga of it, but quite an issue with some delivery of a cater- of some catering and an event and whose responsibility it was to pick this food up, which I will just say wasn't ours, but the <laughs> event. And I was in Ipswich actually working for Women's Aid in Ipswich at the time as a counsellor. I was like, well, I'm in Ipswich and the Bellio, the train service are rubbish, so I can't get back to pick up your catering. And they were really like flapping about the AGM and da 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 and so I just rang her up and I said, what are you doing? And she was like, nothing. Why? <laughs> I was like, can you get to this venue and pick up this catering? And, you know, I'll, I'll be there about an hour or so later. It's like, all right, she said, I've never been there before. I don't know, but I'll look it up and that's fine. And although, like, to some people, getting on their bike, going to a different part of the city, going to a venue you haven't gone to, picking up catering from the suppliers, that's not a big deal. But to her, doing that by herself... And then when I got there, really stressed. So I got picked up, I got there and was like, stressed myself because this other person's been stressing me out about the catering. And I got there, she set it all up and she was just like, done it. And and that was huge for her to, to take charge. And then she's gone on from us, you know, this is a few years ago now, and she's gone on to get numerous employment, but also in the field that she wanted to work in. She wanted to go into sport, she's trained as a PT. But not only that, what the feedback from her youth worker that I loved. She was just like, Kate, she knew what she um, what she had to say in interviews because she said, I've done all this with Turtle Dove. I knew exactly what to say. Not only that, it's the boundaries that we gave her that I am so proud of, that she would go into a workplace if the management were not good management, if they were not treating her properly, not doing what they said, she would leave and she would go and say, I'm not, I'm not having this. This is not okay. I'm going to get a job elsewhere and I'm going to make this work for me and I think for so many young women that come at that at that really kind of crushed level in yeah. regards to I, I don't deserve respect or know what I want or how to verbalize it or communicate properly and then to say no I'm not having this you know I'm I'm going to go somewhere where I feel respected us creating that model of and we do it even in referrals where I say I set out if you've got a complaint against any other staff member volunteer this is who you go to this is what you do so that from the get-go they know actually even I say I say even if it's a slight sarcastic joke and you're not happy about that you need to feel safe here and you need to feel that you can challenge that um, which is really important because other stories of you know young women that go into 
low level paid job like at you know 15 16 years old and the amount of sexual harassment yeah. they're getting that is so normal is just disgusting but then us saying no this is the protocol this is the level of expectation and respect that we all need to give each other nobody's perfect but at the end of the day it's about how do you address that yeah. imperfection within the workplace so that it is a safe place and it is a place you want to go because the worst thing we could do is make make it so that they don't they don't want to come back and that would yeah. that defeats the object um Kate, yeah. all of this sounds brilliant how can people help you would be my first question how can people find out more do you take donations are you looking for people who maybe can offer help in another way that's not money absolutely answer the question about donations we are always very very grateful for donations and um, we have a covid response fundraiser going at the moment that can be found via our website or in the link um in our bio on our instagram page so that is yeah absolutely um as far as if anybody's cambridge based then going into probably next year then as and when events can return and parties can return and by gum do we need them <laughs> then by all means you know book us think about us get in touch when we can unfurlough our staff we are going to have some other uh, initiatives one of which i'm really excited about we are going to we've had some funding from the social investment business we're going to have a branded van we've got the van it's not branded but also if people want to hire a van and they also want to take our beautiful marketing around cambridge come to us rather than any generic, am I allowed to say van man? Come to the van with yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, and we've got Turtle Dove merchandise again on our shop, on our website. We get a small percentage, but it's not just about the money. You know, it's about spreading the word. It's yeah. about um, campaigning and raising awareness. And... and where can people find you on Twitter or, so, or other social media? Sure. So Twitter is at TD Cambridge. Okay. Um, Facebook, it's simply forward slash Turtle Dove Cambridge. Um, and Instagram, it is Turtle Dove Cambridge with underscores in between. Great. I have one more question for you. It may be incredibly difficult to try and answer in a short space of time, okay. but you know. I'll brace myself. <laughs> if, I'm braced. If we've got people out there who have got young people in their life, young girls in their life, that they think need a confidence boost, yeah. what sort of thing? Can they be doing to help girls grow in confidence in themselves? Yeah, that is huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my initial reaction, my gut reaction, that's partly because I'm a trained Ardlerian counsellor and my, someone pointed out how much it is a part of who I am, is always try and find somebody's strengths and resources that they don't even know they've got. So particularly, it's like with somebody with high anxiety, the amount of problem solving the, the concern they'll have for others. You can flip everything on its head, you know, and somebody coming out of, you know, really abusive relationships, like, well, you survived that, you've navigated that, and let's jot down what you did to survive that, to keep your kids safe. And I think it's when you're really low in confidence, it's hard to hear sometimes, yeah. it's hard to see. That's the thing, it can sometimes jar, but the more that you can encourage people to see it for themselves and recognise it for themselves, well, yeah, I am actually really creative or I am actually really considerate and, and those are those are really valuable things that contribute to other people's lives and, and one of the feedback we've had from the young women consistently from young women we've worked with is some of our events are intergenerational so they're for older people, they're grant funded and we'll put an afternoon tea for a charity or for a day centre and it's so cliched but when 
they feel like they they're doing they are well, not feel they are doing something for other people that are often more in need than themselves they've got dementia they can't get out you know they're really lonely and isolated and when they do something for someone else that is is as I said more in need than them they're like oh I feel valued I feel use, useful I feel my my sense of worth has gone up they're encouraging people in not in to diminish what they're going through but in a in a constructive way to look outside yeah. of themselves is is so so key I think and I think it has to be really balanced because equally people with low self-esteem particularly young women can sometimes think a lot more about others than they do themselves yeah. so it has to be has to be really balanced that you don't push people just be think about other people it just depends where they are I guess in that in that journey and but the, the best thing to do is, is for them to be around positive encouraging people that that see them it's about I think a lot about value and particularly about being seen yeah. so recognizing yep yeah, you've gone through this this is terrible yep yeah, you feel like that I'm really sorry you feel like that also what what else is there for the for the future and, yeah. and for you perfect that is a brilliant answer thank you so much for your time kate thank you thank you so much for having me welcome to dunleavy does disaster dunleavy what disaster did we watch this week <laughs> this week we watched <laughs> 1970s so that's not the year, that's just the decade. I think it was 79. I think it's at the yeah. tail end of when the the death of the first first wave of disaster films. And I'm sure this in many ways contributed to it. Uh, <laughs> Meteor, starring Sean Connery, Natalie Wood, Carl Morden, Martin Landau, Henry Fonda. I mean, for fuck's sake, that's actually a good cast. There's a bit in it where you see Carl Morden and Martin Landau having an argument. And I thought, of all the times to get those actors together having a, a meaty argument, it was this film. It's really weird. I think you mean a meteor argument, not a meaty <laughs> one. Eh? Um, so it starts in outer space with this guff about how limitless and timeless space is. And then a comet, which looked like nothing so much as something from Plan 9 from Out of Space, just yep. like careering through. We get told some facts, but the long and short of it is Orpheus is the name of a comet that is 20 miles in diameter, do they say? It's big, it's really fucking big, and is about to crash straight towards Earth. And then we get, as uh, the first time I've had this in ages, what the fuck is that font? Oh, it was splendid. Oh, that terrible. font reminded me of, you know, in the old days when your telly started to go and it would lose, like, <laughs> pixel strips. Yeah. And, and your mum would go, we're not getting a new one, just watch it like it is. Yeah, that's what that font reminded me of. Sean Connery, with an inexplicable accent, is taken off a boat where he is having a lovely time. We were about to win that, Rich. Sorry. And then taken to Houston where he discovers what's going on in space. He's taken into this room where people explain it to him. Everyone in it is dressed like Simon Cowell with really high up trousers, right? <laughs> Except Connery, who's dressed like John Motson. Yes. <laughs> and he hears what's happened. And basically, sorry, Joan's trying to intervene. So basically, there have been some astronauts in space, some American astronauts. Where they were in space, I don't know, because it had gravity in their bit of space that they were in. They weren't even trying to look like they were floating around. There was a bit where they sort of went up like that. And then that was it. Right. And then they were asked to try and sort it out and they got hit basically and knocked out of the sky. 
And there's this amazing moment in it where one of the guys on the spaceship is the son of one of the guys who is trying to communicate this information to him. And I don't know if you guys watch Futurama. It's amazing, yes. uh, yeah. amazing episode of Futurama where Zap Brannigan basically tries to take over the world and he starts a fight with the neutral planet. And there's a bit in which the guy, the president of the neutral planet dies and he says, tell my wife, hello. And <laughs> that really reminded me of this scene because there's a bit in it where he goes, is my dad there? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, tell him I said, hello. <laughs> it was really weird yeah. and unemotional and strange. But also, if you've just clarified that your dad is there, why doesn't he Speak just go, hello, him. dad? Yeah. 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 Is he there? And yeah. then he can hear it. The next thing that happens is they have to work out how they're going to take this comet down. And basically what happens is Sean Connery gets in touch with the Russians because they've got nuclear weapons in space and they're pretty sure the Russians do. And they reckon that they, if they all fired their nuclear weapons... I mean, bearing in mind this is 1979, so obviously Russia and America... Not friends. We all lived through it. So then we cut to Russia. And I will say what impressed me about this film that you rarely see in Hollywood films at that point was that they actually spoke in Russian. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what their accents were like. But rather than pretending that all of those people would have been able to speak English, which undoubtedly a lot of them wouldn't have, they actually do have it with subtitles. This is not a film I would expect it to have any subtitles in it at all nonetheless one of the first conversations they have in russia about is whether they can afford a phone call to america so it's not a particularly (laughs) fair view sean connery's married by the way but he's separated from his wife and you could tell that from the fact that he just hangs up halfway through a conversation without (laughs) saying goodbye to her are the kids there yeah tell them i hello Hello. (laughs) (laughs) that's the only way anyone communicates in this film so basically they managed to persuade the russians and basically, they're trying to stop this. But small incidents start to break out around the world. There is quite possibly one of the greatest moments, I think, if, that I've seen in a disaster film that sums up British people in it. And that's when they talk to the guys at Jodrell Bank about what's happening and what they can see. And although he's a very posh man, and he feels very stereotypically British, what he actually says is the most British thing I've ever heard, which is, he says, I thought I might have seen you at Wimbledon, if there is a Wimbledon. (laughs) That is actually pretty spot on. Whenever they talk to people on the TV screens, no one knows where to look. They're very much like me when I attempt to take a selfie. Yeah, and I'm just like, my eyes are sort of vaguely in the right direction, but there's no contact there. Your British guy's looking straight to the left, though. He's not even trying. Somebody has taken a considerable amount of time, despite the fact they've got five days to make a whole display unit that shows how many days till it strikes. Which, like, but it's literally it's just a day each time. It's just a fucking calendar. It's not even more exciting than but, that. But they've made it. It's got a light system behind it. I mean, it's incredible. There's a family of really, I don't know, unknown ethnicity um, or confusing ethnicity that are hit by a meteor. There are two things in this film that happen that make me think they've taken effects from other films we've already seen, right? Please tell me Avalanche Avalanche, is coming up. Avalanche, like twice, I think there's stuff from Avalanche. I think there's it during the Avalanche, which we will get to, but also in that scene where there's like wind and stuff outside. 
I think that's a straight lift from some of Avalanche. Connery, meanwhile, tries to chat up Natalie Wood, who's playing a, a Russian, and does it in the most amazing style, which we just talked about, Mick, so I will give you the pleasure of doing your Sean Connery impersonation of how he decides to try and woo her. He's made chat with her. Well, it's more chat at her. He's not really allowing her to speak very much as he finds out more about her. And he tells her sort of what he's gleaned about her and then interrupts himself to just go... Very attractive. <laughs> anyway, as you were saying. <laughs> what? He says it's nice to talk to you and she said we've been talking for two days and he says, No, like talk to the talk to you rather than Herbie translating other people's words. Which suggests that he's about like it like makes this half ass suggestion that he actually sees her as like someone beyond what she's doing and then basically goes, Very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether he was supposed to break the fourth wall at that point instead of just deliver his line to Natalie Wood. Yeah, I don't know. maybe. The, like a Terry Thomas. All throughout all of this, there's a very Peter and the Wolf style soundtrack going on. If there's a good person on it or it's going well, it's... You know, and if it's not, it's... The Avalanche, like I say, I think that actually comes from Avalanche and it was possibly even shitter the second time round. <laughs> There's a... I thought it had morphed into that film because it's the it's the cool dude sports guy who has sex with that woman and then chucks her out and she runs around screaming in a nighty. It's his accident in his red outfit yeah. and he gets all that's tangled exactly, up. That's yeah. exactly it. And also the tidal wave. I think I've seen that tidal wave footage before, although I can't think where it'll be. But I was fairly sure I'd seen that. When the tidal wave hits Japan uh, and they're all running around, I was amused enormously by the fact that, like... Everyone's doing something that seems really counterintuitive, which is running downhill. Anyway, there's a, just a cockatoo. A cockatiel just goes, like that. and I just thought, yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> then they realise that something's going to hit New York because always New York. Where does anyone live in New York when all disasters happen there? <laughs> we see what I believe to be stock footage of the demolition of the Bronx going on in that. I think that is actually when they were when they were like flattening huge chunks of the Bronx in the 70s. I think that is what a lot of those shots are. Mm, there's a lot of stock footage. Yeah, the uh, St. Basil's Cathedral in um, Russia, that there's just a shot of it, a really strange kind of tracking shot that does not fit in with the rest of it. So I think that's been stolen from somewhere as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's like they, they couldn't afford to film it or find film of it, so they just filmed a photograph. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. Down it on absolutely a felt yeah. like that. Obviously, they're in New York, the people who are trying to stop the disaster because reasons. So they basically get trapped and then rescued really quite remarkably quickly. But firstly, Connery gets totally covered in mud, which amused the shit out of me. Um, I enjoyed that. Then the meteor gets hit by all the nuclear weapons and turns into a massive burning thing, which goes on for like a full minute. I started to think I was watching a Terrence Malick film. Um <laughs> And then they all emerge to see that despite what we've seen of a meteor hitting New York and despite what we've been told would happen if a meteor hit New York, New York seems to be largely unscathed. It's just got like a long furrow dug through the middle of it. A lovely um, bit at the end where Natalie Wood gets back on the plane, but not before Connery snogs her. And her colleague says to her, I think you'll come back someday. And she sort of smiles and nods, which... As we all know, they would have been arrested and shot for when they got back home to <laughs> Russia for saying that. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was very good. I think its biggest failing was in the fact that 
I don't think you need to know a lot about characters. We like Deep Water Horizon proved that. You can just be dropped in it, not know anything about them and still care. Or you can know a lot about characters and then care for them. This went for some sort of middle ground where I didn't give a fuck who lived or died. In fact, I can't even remember who huge amounts of the people in it were. I think the best way maybe to enjoy this film is to do what the actors in the film do, which is a lot of drinking. Double scotch, everyone. Double scotch. Make it a large one, yeah. Yeah. I didn't like it. Uh, I have to say, I kind of, I kind of lost interest. The last thirty minutes was a bit of a blur because I, yeah, just thought it was a bit shit. I think the biggest thing for me was the special effects and how awful they were. So there was some of the close-ups of the meteor that looked like it was like a cross between they got an Aero chocolate bar and had a bit of a nibble uh-huh. and closed up on it. Or just like a dog turd flying through space. And then I thought, no, you can't judge it like that because it's 1979. So then I started doing a little bit of research thinking, okay, what else was out in 1979? Oh, Alien. And Alien yeah. won the Oscar for SFX. So actually, do you know what? Really, really shit. Um, This was actually nominated for an Oscar for sound, which baffles me. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Now, it lost out to Apocalypse Now, obviously, but it was just exactly what you said, Hannah. Um, There was a bit where we first saw the Russians, and I think they were, you know, kind of somebody made a joke and another one of them said, now is not time for frivolity. And then they all just looked really serious again. But it was kind of comic <laughs> music yeah. in the background. Um, there was little moments of it that were quite camp, but it never really kind of, nothing went with it. Like Sean Connery's first line was, give me the horn. And then another bit where he's chasing, <laughs> he's being chased around a table by another guy. And then they kind of have a face-to-face and he says, I can't do a Sean Connery. It'll sound like I've had a stroke. But he says, okay, you son of a bitch, but I want it straight up and down. And it was very, you know, there was there was a lot of lines that were could have come straight out of a porno, which I really appreciated. And then <laughs> it just, I just lost, I lost interest with it. I just, it was just like a real, I think I, I texted, didn't I, and said it was like a double scotch and schlong fest. And yeah, apart from and ironically, I love scotch and slums. Yeah, (laughs) hey Hannah, who doesn't? We all love those things. And Natalie Woods, impressive Russian, because she can't, she could speak Russian. Um, But it just became a bit of a nothing. I thought the pace of it in the last half an hour or so, and the characterisation, just blended into a big old ball of bland shit. So, which is weird because you you knew that the nuclear weapons and it's always a nuclear weapon to stop a meteor hitting Earth, as we've established with Armageddon and Deep Impact. We knew that was gonna. There's no sort of oh, are they gonna make it? That's gonna hit. It's all gonna be fine. And it's yeah. almost like they thought, oh, but we need more calamity, so we're gonna get this building destroyed, and then there's gonna be mud, and then there's gonna be a train for them to get on, and then like escalators they've got to try and scramble up. It was yeah. really weird. Yeah. The sort of dangers in inverted commas they were throwing at our plucky cast of survivors. And then the World Trade Center gets blown up. Yeah. So you watch that and think, oh, you know. That's, that always happens now if you see anything with the World Trade Center. In. But yeah, very um, forgettable, I think. Let's yeah. look at the sheets. Yeah, did you like it, Mickey? Oh, sorry. I thought my description of how 
awful it was <laughs> showed that I didn't like it. But you're right, sometimes that really makes a film. But no. I think I've got one this week. I think I've got four, potentially five if you let me. Only if there's a Connery impression. Three, four, I have five. Shall I get mine out of the way? Yeah. Yes. So Is I... it a Brexit analogy? No, it's not. So I've I've got tunnel only an idiot would try to go through because they try to go through the subway and it just turns into a big trap. And it doesn't deserve a Brexit analogy. I tried to think of a funny one and then I thought, no, it doesn't deserve it. You're rubbish. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> Mickey? Okay, so my like definite four are nature, you cruel mistress. Comets used to be our friends until Orpheus. Mid-disaster punch-up. There's a lot of arguing with the general. Farewell, Major Landmark. Goodbye, Twin Towers, which is... Yeah, it's really poignant when, when that happens now. And where are the fucking women is is getting a little look in because there's his soon-to-be ex-wife and uh, Natalie Wood, who is indeed very attractive. and She actually gets some stuff to do, but it's mainly helping the men talk to each other. So I would think I can have, for the first time ever, ironic death because there is the general who just keeps going, it's not even happening. What are you talking about? There's no danger. And then it kills him. Yeah. Did, yeah, you yes. have that. Did you say, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Who's been in a disaster film? Henry Fonda is also in The Swarm. I mean, who, who would have thought, you know, someone of Henry Fonda's stature would be in two of the worst films ever made. But he was the I, guy stop that... Stop bad-mouthing the swarm. He it's amazing. was the guy that basically decided to test the venom on himself. The doctor in the wheelchair in the swarm. Of course, he was just much, much older. Why was he so old in that film? <laughs> I don't was, know. I think it was made before Meteor. Okay, well, I don't know if I'm allowed it when I didn't think of it. So I'm going to say that I've still only got five. No, have it. should have had six. Have it. Okay, I've got six. Have it, because I've ticked thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. And I've ticked that reflexively because that is always a point scorer for me. But I can't think of a specific thing. My eyes, the CGI, I mean, I don't think that was CGI technically, but I'm not not having that because that was some of the worst shit I've ever seen. And like I say, some of it recycled shit as well. Local radio reports, it's all fine. The disaster has passed. Dramatic strings, of which there are a lot in this. Also some kind of dramatic woodwind as well, but I haven't got that in a box. What the fuck is that Sorry font, about that. which I haven't had for a while, which means I've got four. So I'm going to say Mickey's Absolutely. one. Well done, Mickey. Okay. It's been a while since Mickey's we have one. Had another, we have had another listener request, but as much as I love our listeners, I might have to say no, because she has requested that we watch Sharknado 7. Yes! Um, <laughs> Because she thoroughly enjoyed us talking about Sharknado, so now she wants us to, to skip to the end. And it's got well, sharks, in, Mickey. Come on. Well, in that case, like I thought, you guys would be not down for it at all. Sharknado Seven. I think. In, I think I've read that in Sharknado Seven there are dinosaurs. Uh, there are sharks in space, or it's oh. sharks versus dinosaurs and time travel. Yes. It's one or the other. I thought that was Sharknado Six. Okay, Mandy Carver has requested that we watch Sharknado 7. And you guys are keen? Well, I I think, to be honest, if we listened to whoever told us to watch Left Behind and, uh, yeah. (laughs) Hayley Corney. Hayley. I'm sorry, Hayley. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah. She did send me an apology. Bless her. It's all right, Hayley. She loved it. She did it on purpose. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I can certainly watch Sharknado 7. 
And how would Sean Connery say Sharknado 7? Sharknado 7. I mean, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure Sharknado 7 counts as a disaster film, but, you know, fuck it. Standard Issue for All Women.